0: Welcome to the Ice Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Most angel networks develop organically, but what if you went about it in a deliberate way? 24 Haymarket have genuinely built something different, and we get a CEO, Paul Salentis, on to discuss their concept, how they went about developing their organization, and what the challenges and benefits were. If you joined the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, that you can email us at inquiries at harmanandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So, today we are joined by Paul Salentis, who is CEO of 24 Haymarket. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. It's good to have you. So, as usual, we'd like to start by learning a little bit more about our guests. So, can you tell us uh, how you became involved in venture capital?
1: So I got involved in uh, venture capital about 15 years ago when I when I left Lehman Brothers, where I started my career, uh, to join J.P. Morgan's private equity units. They are about to spin out from the bank uh, at the time, where Jamie Dimon realised that competing with your clients was was not really a great idea. And amongst other things, I was handed responsibility at the age of 25 for managing J.P. Morgan's expansive European venture capital portfolio. Many of the investments coming from the pre dot com era. It was a great introduction to VC as I, as I had a number of uh, problematic investments all over the continent to kind of work through over the five years that I spent with JPM. And then one very significant investment in Betfair that I was involved in supporting all the way through IPO. So that gave me a very good introduction to VC, but really. Within the sort of paradigm that existed in the late '90s and early 2000s, which obviously was a very different paradigm to that which exists
0: today, particularly mm-hmm. in Europe. So that was kind of through the dot com era.
1: Well, managing out a lot of the investments that were made in the dot com era, you know, and I think uh, by and large the into you know, the approach and in, in that area was spray and pray and try to. Try to invest in as many things as you could do. Um, and as a result, the loss rate uh, or the zombie rate was, was pretty high. It wasn't really an effective model, particularly within a European context. You know, I can sort of understand that extreme diversity in the US where you do have more of a power law phenomenon and companies when they do break through can be huge, working a little bit more appropriately in that market, but I don't think it's appropriate philosophy within the European context.
0: Do you think there's less scope for upside in the in the European markets then?
1: Well, it depends what how you define upside. I mean, I think there's there's huge value to be created in the in the venture capital class. I think that value will be fragmented across more companies than within the US context for for, for a couple of reasons, I think. Firstly, within the US it's one very large, homogenous market in terms of consumer behavior, currency, uh, legal system, you know, navigating from one state to the next. Yes, it's different state laws, but it's not It's not that different op- op- operating in Texas versus California, for example, in most verticals. In a European context, that, that analogy would be, say, moving from the UK to France, completely different cultures, different languages, Different, different legal systems and the list goes on. So, you know, I think the the European venture system is probably more geared towards outcomes of, call it, 100 million to 500 million exit you know, value, uh, a lot more of them than, you know, being concentrated in, you know, these kind of unicorn outcomes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's something I've seen, I focus on the UK and very much more clearly there's been a a Darth, if you like, of UK unicorns, and I know we have got quite a few now, but what you know, if you look two or three years ago, there was hardly any at all. Yeah,
1: I mean, I guess at the end of the day, um, from an investment perspective, you know, it's one thing to say you're invested in a unicorn, but if you invested in that company at an eight hundred million uh, you know pre-money valuation in the series D round and you're sitting on a unicorn, well, you know you're not you're not looking at a very good return. You know if you invest in a company that's only worth hundred million and you're going in at a five million pre-money valuation, even accounting for dilution odds are you're probably doing better in that um, putting your capital into that situation.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a capital-weighted aspect that in the US that I think is underappreciated, where actually a lot of money does go in at later stages. So you were at JP Morgan. How did you end up with Twenty Four Haymarket, or end up creating Twenty Four Haymarket?
1: Yeah, so I I, I got involved in Twenty Four Haymarket in 2014, early 2014, and the business had been around before my involvement for about two years so even though I was, I'm, I'm one of the co-founders um, you know there was a, a prototype for 24 Haymarket market before I got involved and the the reason that I got involved with 24 Haymarket market and helped to build the business into what it is today is that I saw a couple of opportunities in the market. the first was that uh, in terms of how the venture capital, Ecosystem had evolved since I was about you know, sort of first got involved in that 10 years previously. Was that a lot of the companies that were very successful in backing venture stage and startup companies in the 90s and 2000s had really navigated upwards to really be growth equity investors deploying 10, 20, sometimes 30, 40 million you know, pounds of capital uh, at much, much later stages. And that sort of left a gap quartered around the sort of seed, Series A, um, sometimes the Series B uh, phase at that stage as well. That not a lot of institutional players were going after relative to the demand from companies that are kind of breaking through. And there really were a lot of very interesting companies. I think if you have to look at, you know, say the Harvard-MIT ecosystem in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the number of very interesting companies coming out there is arguably behind you know that of the sort of Oxford-Cambridge um, you know ecosystem, but the the level of capital, you know, there is far ahead, you know, ten to fifteen years further ahead than you know what we have within the UK context. So there was there was clearly a, a market that was underserved. On the other side of the equation, there's something fascinating about um, you know what evolved in the high net worth market about 10 years ago, I think on the one hand, you've had a a generation of very successful, very connected, very experienced business people coming out of their full-time careers in the city as senior operators, whatever the case may be. And there wasn't really many vocational options available to them. I think many of these individuals probably had the dream of being non-executive directors on on public company boards but when they kind of got to that stage found that the regulatory Requirements uh, uh, and and the scrutiny um, around being a public company director was 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 not really something that they, they they wanted to get involved with and there wasn't really a lot that once you get to that stage in life late fifties sixties and you still want to remain active um, you know that provided them with the platform to do so on the other side of the equation I think the wealth management um, industry hasn't necessarily kind of kept up in in catering in a sophisticated way towards, you know, that really sort of top echelon of, you know, business people who both have a lot of experience as well as kind of capital to deploy. And so what we wanted to do was really try to create a solution for that cohort of investors. So experienced business people who wanted to have an active say in how their capital was deployed and by solving for that problem we were able to sort of um, you know come up with a an innovative solution for that 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 points in the funding cycle that is difficult for institutions to really properly service
0: yeah because you've got an interesting model because you've got twenty four hour market in some sense almost a service country company attached to an angel network I don't know quite how you you would phrase it, but you definitely have this very sophisticated angel network. Was the vision almost from the outside a uh, the 24 year market this of getting the sophisticated angel network, or did you actually have just you blundered around a little bit of, in the yeah. way that most people do, and then eventually you sort of figured it out?
1: Well, the interesting thing was that, you know, we didn't have a strategy initially. We executed, uh, and I think a lot of the best businesses get out there and execute. And I think the thing that we did right is that the – the initial 20 or 25 people in our business, whether they're employees or um, investors, all of whom are, are pretty much with us today, were great people, really top-notch people, and a lot of those people came out of careers in private equity. Uh, many of them have been chairmen or chairwomen of you know large private, European private equity firms, have been managing partners of those firms, and so you know, they really brought an understanding with them as to what, you know, sort of good looks like in an investment business. And I was very fortunate to have people like that around me, you know, because I had good experience, but it was, it was about 10, 10 or 12 years of experience when I already started to kind of, um, you know, build out 24 hair markets. So I was heavily reliant on on that initial cohort of largely, you know, ex-private equity venture investors who kind of really brought the best of what they had applied at their respective firms, you know, to bear. And that that, that allowed us to kind of build a strategy out of the people that we had in those, in, you know, in those initial stages.
0: Yeah, I mean that raised that an interesting question in my mind because you talk about 25 people. That, to me, sounds like a lot of people for a startup, and I realize not all of these are executive, but mm. they're probably very used to being executive, and being actively involved, and while in one sense it's great to have all these people get involved, that makes it, in some sense, difficult to manage because there's a lot of people shoving in opinions, probably, yeah. while it'd be commonality, they'll probably disagree on a lot as well. Yeah,
1: no, and that's true. In the early days, it was to use the the term herding cats. Um, so you had this, you know, the great insights, but everybody kind of had to have their their own say and express their own view. And you know, as, a, as as a you know sort of executive team, we're slightly caught between that. I I must be honest. In the first sort of two or three years, you know, as we as we really sort of discovered our own voice. Uh, but what we also really learned to do was to systematize the, the herding of the cats. So, you know, people ask me, well, isn't it difficult kind of keeping your investors engaged and, you know, getting them? Well, you know, yeah, it was difficult for the first couple of years, but we re- very quickly realized that there is, on every deal that we do, or every company that we see, we're going through the same process. You know, every, uh-huh. every single time you go through the same process and you can build a process map out of that and then you can kind of build that into software. And we've, we, we've done that over the last seven or eight years, you know, our, our, our business runs off of Salesforce from where our investors engage with, from where we kind of prospect with companies or or new investors, you know, it's all kind of codified, you know, in that sense. So we really now, there's very little kind of, you know, sort of herding of the cat really just falls into that, you know, um, scalable, repeatable uh, investment process.
0: Yeah. And moving to software, you mentioned you've got a lot of people who sometimes are elderly retired now maybe that's a bit different from the way it was sort of 15 years ago but bringing these people technology or getting these people to use technology can be a challenge or has that become self-filtering or or is that no, just history now no, no. you know
1: technology is pervasive you know now it's everybody understands technology yeah sure I mean um, you know if you're kind of talking about sort of deep tech and AI and things like the metaverse, um, you know, maybe older generations don't have uh, as, as as firm a grasp of that. But consumer, you know, technology, everybody's kind of on board with that. We, we never had any problems with that, you know, in terms of the people that we're engaged with.
0: Uh-huh. So the thing that intrigued me about your network, apart from the quality of people, was the fact that you have a very differentiated approach to recruitment because most angel networks, in se- some sense, are ground up in yeah. that there's a group of people with a common theme, either they're, they're in the same area. I mean, Cambridge notoriously has, well, famously has a very great angels. Scotland, we've got some as well. Or they're around the theme. So we've seen, I know there's, there's, a, there's a good one now for women. I was chatting to one recently, uh, the Green Angels, about green tech, whereas you have built it in a very different way. And in particular, was almost top down, the fact that you charge, and charge quite a meaningful amount of money for people who will be members, seemed a key differentiator. How did you come about introducing that idea, and how did you make it work?
1: Well, you know, I think I think the first point to make is that from the outset, you know, we built what we believe is an institutional-grade process. Yes, in the initial instance, we were only dealing with the top of the funnel, a couple of hundred deals. A lot of that kind of came from our initial members, um, you know, but we had really deep, rigorous diligence instituted from the beginning, very high-quality post-investment reporting, And we had to do all of that again because you know we were dealing with an initial clientele who were used to you know seeing all of that when they ran very large private equity firms. You know, and I think we're also dealing with a clientele who kind of understood that to get that costs money, to get a premium investment product costs money. So we've always been very focused on you know being product centric, disregarding the price. Rather than kind of cost um, centric, and I think a lot of people that kind of came into angel investing, you know, might have said, okay, look, we need to lower the barriers to adoption or bringing people in, and we we kind of went the the opposite way and said, okay, look, we want to make sure that um, you know if somebody's getting involved with us it is a meaningfully high subscription rate, you know, that they're only going to sort of find value in that if they're investing, you know, a a minimum amount of money that is quite meaningful, often 200, 300k plus per year. And the only way that most people are going to invest that amount is if they're very close to the investments that they are making. So it's not just, yeah, I'll pump 50 or 100k and and go away. Uh, people are putting meaningful amounts of money in, and uh, because of that, they are they are very close to the decision-making process as to where that money goes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it did seem to me that if someone is making that financial commitment, yeah, you know, again, you we, we used that phrase herding cats. In some sense, they're not going to be running around the same direction or different direction so much because once the investment's made, they're very invested, you know, financially. Yeah,
1: and you know, I think I think there is also an element. I mean, we we didn't necessarily take the traditional angel, you know, sort of uh, investment model and say, okay, let, let's build on that. We didn't start with what traditional. We didn't know that. I mean, we we're all ex-private equity people. We took private equity and said, okay, look, this is how private equity works. Now let's apply it to this stage of the market in a deal-by-deal context. So I think we kind of get grouped into angel investing, but it's not really how we started. We really started thinking, okay, look, what is what is the best and class private equity product? You know, knowing that the venture capital industry is probably ten to fifteen years behind private equity in terms of its developments in a European context. You know, let's 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 take that and apply that um, to high net worth deal-by-deal investing, and that's and that's what we came up with.
0: Mm-hmm. At the same time, if you're recruiting new members, and I yeah, sh- you know, and, and, and I know you still do add add to your your membership pool. I'll, I'll, in some sense, you are competing with other angel networks, which are you. Know, I would imagine people looking they look at you. That's the alternative. How do you market that in terms of getting over that message about okay, it's, there's a cost, but we're different. Yeah.
1: I mean, again, the the profile of people who join us, you know, the the economics are are you know the a secondary part of the equation because many people are coming to us because, you know, they want to be in a place where, you know, they trust the providence and because we've only ever grown through introductions from our existing members, so we've always kind of you know worked within the very extensive networks of our existing investors rather than. Working with third-party introducers like wealth managers, wealth managers or recruitment firms, you know there is that kind of degree of trust. So we have a very cohesive group. It's not like we're adding people in and that just don't know one another and they meet around the investment table. Yes, not everybody knows one another that well, but there's always a couple of these degrees of separation of somebody joining right now versus our kind of initial um, initial members. So the the provenance here and the trust um, in terms of who else is getting involved is 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 very important. I mean, I think the again the economics of it, you you, you kind of get what you pay for. If you you pay very slim economics, you're not going to really get good diligence because you're never going to attract a a team to kind of come and work on that aspect, you know. And you're not going to get really strong quality post investment support, and therefore you're not going to really be getting good deals at the end of the day either.
0: Yeah. I do wonder a little bit of what you you do is different from Angel Networks And that most Angel Networks also focus what I would call on early stage, seed, pre-seed sort of stage. Yeah. Most of what you do is a bit later than that, I think. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And and so do you see that as a key differentiator as well?
1: Yeah, again, I mean the inter- you know, the interesting just kind of coming back to the point of, of lumping us within the angel market. <laughs> I suppose that's kind of the closest definition um, mm-hmm. of what we do but it's not a definition we would have chosen you know I like an think- investor's club might be a better description or mm-hmm. not even that. Uh, I mean, we we call ourselves a private capital private capital group and 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 as we'll come on to we service the different pockets of you know of capital um but you know i think the only similarity between us and you know, traditional angel groups and we do we do deal by deal. You know, that 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 is the only, I think, reason why we lumped into that. Now I think you're one of the limitations of kind of how the market perceives angel investors is that, you know, because you do deal by deal, therefore people assume you should be kind of doing early stage stuff. Well, you know, if you kind of look at the risk adjusted return of doing very early stage startups, it's not the it's not the place that, you know, in the in the value creation curve that you'd be looking to you know, to play in if you had your choice of where to where to be. You know, we we obviously kind of, because of you're, you're always constrained by your capital base, that's kind of where we had to start out doing 500k tickets. And as we've evolved, we've tried to find the point where actually, look, we're, we're in a part of that curve, you know, where there's enough sort of commercial traction and momentum that we feel the companies are sufficiently de-risked. From a commercial perspective, but they're they're not far enough yet that it's overly competitive, you know. In terms of uh, you know the pricing, there's not enough people kind of chasing after it yet, and that and that's sort of the sweet spot that we feel that that we found. But yes, we do encounter it where people say, "Oh, you're an angel. You should be kind of over there." <laughs> <laughs> we really don't want to be over there. We're we're very happy where we are. Thank mm-hmm.
0: you. Yeah. So it's interesting. You, you spoke earlier about of the, the gap in the market and this funding gap. And I'm slightly intrigued about how you see whether that has changed. Because everybody in I speak to the market talks about there's a funding gap, but people yeah. always seem to put it in a slightly different place.
1: Well, I don't I mean, I think maybe kind of the gap is 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 the wrong way or wrong way of defining it because the reality is that you know in this world of you know sort of hyper low interest rates and you know high capital efficiency. There is no part of the capital markets anywhere, you know, where there's where there's a gap, but there are kind of pockets where, you know, the competitive dynamics uh, and the supply and demand of of supply of capital and demand for capital are a little bit more favorable than you know, sort of areas around it, you know. And I think the venture market is kind of is a, it's an interesting one because, you know, no company at the outset raises all of the money that it's ever going to need for its entire you know life it just couldn't sort of sustain the valuation required for it to make you know sense to the founders so companies have to go through raising at different points in the cycle and a lot of companies have tried to kind of make the call the ip to ipo um, you know model work Uh, you know the reality is that doing that often involves dealing with multiple different sources of capital at various stages and therefore introduces A lot of conflict of interest, um, you know, into how you navigate across that, and we try to stay away from, from that, you know. But I think for us, what we sort of found is that, you know, at the very early stages, you know, the barriers to, to entry are very low, and you know, you see a lot of individuals going in there, and you know, getting an angel syndicate up and running that can kind of do a 100, 200, 300k ticket is pretty. It's pretty easy going. You know, there's incubators, accelerators, family offices now playing in that sort of call of anything up to a million pounds. So there's a lot lot going on in that space. And then on the other side, you know, I think there's a feeding frenzy at the Series C level. Um, so anything that's kind of uh, Series B and Series C, actually, anything where you're kind of doing 10, 20, 30 million pounds, tickets plus, you know, there's a lot of capital there, whether it's a tr- traditional VC firms, the new, you know, U.S. entrants. You know the uh, the social impact funds, private equity firms now starting to play. the list, the list goes on. And then you know you've got the sort of space in between where it actually you know sort of probably is largely the preserve of 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 EIS and you know and VCT and that that is a newer industry. I don't think it's sort of fully evolved to the point yet. You know where there's a, you know, aside from probably octopus on the, on the VCT side, a dominating kind of player, uh, you know, in that market. But the the dynamics are a lot more favourable playing at that sort of part of the of, of the value chain.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So looking back over the last few years, how do you feel that your process has evolved in terms of either managing your membership or or managing what you're doing, because. It, it's been a dramatic few years in many ways.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think you're probably kind of referring to the last few years' COVID and how it's kind of gone. Yeah. You know, well, that's years. obviously yeah. the
0: most dramatic thing. But, yeah, you know, we, we've obviously seen, I mean, Brexit has had an yeah. impact. And I think just the rise of funding generally, I mean, you, you're the follow on for that, you know, what we just spoke about is that there's a lot more capital floating around than there was when you started developing this model six or eight years ago. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, I mean, look, I think, you know, again, nothing stays inefficient forever. And so you have to assume markets have become more and more efficient. And your role, I guess, as a leader of a business or as a fund manager is to make sure that you are evolving your competitive differentiation at a faster rate than the market is becoming efficient. And that's and that's what I've kind of kept a very close eye on. So when I when I think about how we were seven or eight years ago, it was kind of shooting fish in a barrel at that at that point in time. Um, you know, we had our choice of some of the very best opportunities. But in the same token, it was probably tougher to raise the financing to get that, you know, the, the asset class was less well characterized. We didn't have the, the track record to kind of do that. So now it sort of almost feels like things are a little bit reversed raising capital. Is I wouldn't say it's straightforward; it never is. But you know, we have a model for that, we kind of learned what works, and we have a track record and all that stuff. You know, we have to kind of work harder than we were doing on you know finding deals. But I, I, what I would say is that even if the market is more efficient now than what it was seven, or eight years ago, it's nothing compared to what I experienced working in private equity um, between the you know sort of 2008 to 2012 area where that was that was another level of hyper uh, hyper hyper competition. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so how do you ensure high-quality deal flow? Because it occurred to me right at the very start, you must have had a real problem in terms of you, you had no track record return raising capital. If you went to people, you, you tried to persuade them, yes, we can provide capital when you hadn't done it. How, do you, how did you establish high-quality deal flow and how have you maintained that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the easy, the easy answer to that uh, comes back to the, you know, the people who were involved in our business in the very beginning. You know, and they were very seasoned private equity uh, um, investors. They knew one another. One Did you trade off their name a little bit? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, you know they they are the people who got twenty four Haymarket up and running. I'm just the guy who sort of came in to you know to build on that initial success. And you know I think that because of their names and reputations, people knew them rather than twenty four Haymarket, and we got deal flow, a lot of deal flow through that. I mean, the deal flow, when I started to try to wrap my arms around it was just prolific. It was great deal flow, just, just too much of it then, you know, too much for one firm to kind of reasonably handle without a process. And you know, I think that that again is is, is one of the things that I was very fortunate to inherit and then work with was great prolific deal flow. And we built our model around that. So while we started with great private equity investors, we added operators over time. We've now been trying to complement that with more entrepreneurs, focusing on our, our, our recruitment of our investor network or our angel syndicates you know, around the specific sectors that we're going after. So you know, our criteria for who is an investor is that has evolved as we have evolved.
0: Yeah, so, so you mentioned looking at, you know, although it's kind of networked, you talk about still targeting and trying to get specific people. So do you say to your membership, find me an entrepreneur, find me someone who works in this area that we, we're we so particularly interested in? Yeah,
1: yeah, more or less. I mean, you know, right now, we're, well, we want to find entrepreneurs. We obviously want to grow, you know, sort of our, our female members and, uh, you know, we're trying to sort of uh, bulk out our members within the climate tech and supply chain and logistics areas, both areas that we're, we're keen to do more in, but where we're a little bit sort of underrepresented in terms of prior commercial experience relative to some of the other areas uh, where we've been very successful, like cybersecurity and digital healthcare.
0: And how do you manage the diversity issue? Because it seems to me one of the, yeah, if you if you're relying particularly the start on private equity. You're sort of inheriting private equities problem because there just aren't that many women in there. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, and that's and that is that is one of our challenges. It's always going to be one of our challenges. Um, you know, the fact that we've got of really focused on developing our you know our network and um, you know and culture around people who know one another rather than trying to lump together you know sort of a a set of strangers and kind of hope, hoping it works, uh, ho- ho- hoping that it works out you know, as a result of that, you kind of do have, you know, some of the challenges of private equity in the 80s and 90s when many of these people were coming out as a very heavily male dominated, um, you know, industry. But, you know, we're, we're pushing to correct that. And we do have some very high profile female investors with with us right now. And we're speaking with many others. It's just not as many as I would like.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think there's one or two people finding the same issue where, they, yeah. they want to do more, but the legacy you have where you're looking at women who have the experience or, or the money, you're relying on other people having, their, they've got need to get through that stage and there's that chicken and egg about getting on yeah, to years be, funding. To be honest with you, I mean, where we're finding more success is kind of
1: backing female entrepreneurs and improving diversity at the board level of the companies we invest in. Um, including diversity of the senior executive teams, because there is a there is a deeper pool there to be working in. Um, you know, I think I think you do have this sort of inherent, you know, bias at the kind of you know investor level that is. You
0: know, you can work very hard, but it is very difficult to kind of overcome. Mm-hmm. Yep. So looking forward a little bit, which is always dangerous. How do you see things developing over the next sort of couple of years? I mean, you you you've built about a hundred. A network of about 100 people i think Definitely which not. which is you know beyond the sort of critical mass i would have, would have thought you've hinted about the sort of areas you want to grow in how do you see things developing for you over the next couple of years and how you want to steer that yeah well i think it's you know
1: the first point to note there is how we've evolved over the, the last two or three years uh in that strategy and i think the major shift that we've made and you know hence the reason for our talking is that we introduced a uh, committed capital product alongside our investment network product uh, about two years ago and um, successfully closed off um, some initial commitments of that of around 15 million pounds uh, and we're going to be out to market again um, in the first half of
0: uh, 2022. So that's effectively a fund
1: yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, the rationale behind that was that we we've learned over time that you know the the investor network is really great as a as an engagement um, you know model. And actually, as you bring more people in, it doesn't dilute the experience; actually, enhance it because you kind of get more and more critical mass and virality of ideas, conversation. If you have the right calibre of people around the room, and it's it's well moderated. But we've also just realized that, you know, sort of as a capital source, you know, that, that model is, while it's high engagements and really valuable to the founders, is not quite as scalable as your traditional committed capital model. And so we wanted to combine the best of both worlds, really, to have a business where we're drawing 50% of our capital from the deal-by-deal angel network and 50% from committed capital sources, with the idea being that. The value proposition to both parties is quite interesting, you know, the fund being able to co-invest alongside a very seasoned group of individuals who are you know, sort of front and centre with my executive team and I in making the decisions and putting their own money on the line, uh, as well as their experience and contacts and getting involved in the board. Uh, you know, from their perspective, you know, the, the fund uh, allowed us to play in slightly bigger, slightly later stage deals buy more influence in the companies that we were investing in and that that is attractive to many of our investors who don't want to be doing early stage high commercial risk opportunities they want to be playing at later stages so there was very good synergies between the two capital sources on a number of levels um, and I think our aspirations for this business over the next couple of years are going to run in parallel with uh, you know with 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 that I think in the very near term over the next two to three years, we're really focused on this Series A part of the you know the venture capital funding markets and you know making sure that we could be doing the very best opportunities there, be doing them well. We only want to do seven or eight new deals a year. You know, and I think that's where we're gonna really focus our, our efforts over the next couple of years, really growing these two products in parallel, the network and you know the fund with the idea that you know, the network is probably catering towards slightly larger ticket investors, those who want to get actively involved in what we're doing, where their um, experience and uh, background really fit the profile of the sectors that we're going after. And then the, the fund model is by and large more geared towards uh, people at the slightly lower, but still meaningful levels of, of commitments, you know, 100 to 200K per year rather than 250K plus. And um, by and large, people who are in still, still in full-time um, executive roles. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to develop those two in parallel. I think in a couple of years' time, once we have a really good, sticky client base, we'll probably investigate whether there are other uh, products that we can kind of look to grow into. I think a lot of us have background in private equity and cash flow generative business of buying control stakes. We have a lot of background on the credit side, you know, of the product value proposition. So there's, you know, there's other places that we can kind of be looking to grow into with that, um, you know, very, very preeminent customer base and client base that we've developed.
0: And the way you speak about these different target markets for the, for the network and the fund, do you think over time there's a case of... You, the fund investors, if you're talking about these executives, when they retire, they, become, they, they they sort of move across the network, do you think? Or is that just, you know, well, it might work?
1: Yeah, it's funny. We didn't design the two products that way, but in practice, that is how it is exactly working. Um, okay, un- already. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's been one of those sort of fortunate, unforeseen byproducts of, of putting these two together. So on the one hand, when we launched the fund, we actually had a couple of our network members say to us, look, you know, Paul, we're, uh, we just don't have the time. We, we kind of want to go off and sit on the golf course to go fish or go traveling, um, you know, but we have, you know, income we want to offset. We'd rather kind of do a passive product. We've seen it from the inside. We like what, we, what, what you do. We don't think we'd add the value that uh, you and some of your more inv- involved investors will do. Let's kind of move into that. Um, and then equivalently, you know, I've had of our initial cohorts of, of, of members within our fund or investors within our fund, we've had a few individuals, probably a handful of five or seven say, look, uh, this is super interesting. I'm looking to retire in four, five, six years time. This is a, um, an entree, a way for me to kind of get to know what you do uh, a little bit better so that by the time I do retire, I kind of understand angel investing a lot better. And that can be my next sort of vocation. So, we are sort of seeing it, you know, as a life cycle management um, approach as well, where by and large, the fund will probably be most relevant for people caught between the ages of 40 and 45. As they move into the plural stages of retirement, you know, the network is probably most relevant. And then as they move into proper retirement and don't want to actually come and be actively involved, it's back to the fund. Um, You know, so that sense is kind of working working nicely that way. Again, we didn't design it that way, but it's it's been a really interesting, positive externality. Mm-hmm.
0: No, That, that sounds like an interesting lifecycle development. So, yeah, sometimes sometimes things do work out well accidentally, even if we don't design them.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, yeah, it's early days still. Um, again, we've got to sort of make that work in practice. But, you know, from a value proposition point of view, that, that, that piece has really resonated with many investors on both sides of the fence. Excellent, excellent.
0: So what I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So I'll throw these at your direction and we'll get your thoughts. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made and why did you make it? Yeah, so we
1: the most recently uh, new investment we made was in a, a Cambridge company called Dogtooth Technologies. And we made that decision during the summer and eventually closed the deal in September. We led a seven billion series A round with uh, Octopus and Local Globe, uh, Angel Co-Fund, a few very prominent um, industry angels following us uh, into that into that deal. And the reason that we made it was, and just a bit, bit of context in the company, they they, they basically have developed IP protected robotic fruit uh, fruit picking soft fruit picking robots uh, which have the ability both to understand fruit ripeness via machine vision uh, and then the, the uh, robotic dexterity
0: to pick the pick and pack those fruits in situ without harming the fruit. which is very challenging having done a little bit of fruit picking that is not an easy job it's it's not an easy job fruit picking um actually is a very
1: it's a very skilled a skilled task and the uk is faced with a challenge right now where maybe 20 or 30 years ago high school students would spend their summers picking strawberries or other soft fruits and that that isn't the case anymore younger generations don't want to do that on the same side of things it takes seasons to train a you know experienced fruit picker and with the migrant labor restrictions introduced by brexit and made even more stringent as a result of COVID, you've got a situation where fruits and other foods basically rotting on the vine. And so we kind of looked at it as the next next frontier of robotic automation. If you kind of look at what's happened in Ocado and Amazon warehouses further on down, you know, sort of the food and, and, and retail value chains, kind of going back to the agricultural segments, you know, feels like the next frontier it 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 also is from an agricultural perspective you know one of those areas where you know wastage and 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 carbon emissions are kind of you know front and center in terms of eliminating so you know we 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 were very keen on the on the sector and space and we had somebody uh within our group of members who used to run the farming business at co-op um so really kind of understood how to commercialise something from a retailer point of view? Because at the end of the day, farmers in the UK, um, you know, it's a very tight, tight margin business. Mm-hmm. Soft fruit uh, farmers, strawberry farmers, kind of make higher margins than anybody else, but it's still, it's still lead margins. So you really need to bring a value proposition to the retailers, and I think that that's what, through our network of investors, we found somebody that had a a plan and a vision that we
0: could kind of really get behind. So we we're, we're very excited about the opportunity for that sounds excellent. So in the classic venture capital triumvirate of market product or management, we know they're all important, but which one is the most important for you? I would say it always always comes down to people first.
1: People are the most important thing, and the reason why I say that and you know I put market number 2 is high quality people will always find a good market. And it might it might sound trivial to say, but when you're even if you're an in investor or somebody sitting on the outside looking at these broad themes that we track, you're never going to have the uh, the experience in that particular market that somebody who spent 20, 30, you know, years of their career really kind of tracking and knowing it in depth, knowing everybody. And those people are the ones who kind of really just see where things are changing, where the opportunities are going to are going to lie. So, you know, from my point of view, you know, you follow people first. The high quality people lead you into very interesting, you know, market sections of market number two. And, you know, product is very important. But I think um, very often, particularly with, you know, ground up innovation, which comes out of universities, you've got, you know, problems looking for a solution. So you have great, great, great technology, great innovation, very disruptive, but, you know, there's no plan or there's no way to actually go and commercialize it. And so, you know, we we tend to prioritize uh, people market product, you know, in that order on the basis that, you know, the right right leaders find the right market segments will kind of find a way to kind of get the product working. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it
1: yeah well, I think um you know I probably fail every week. Um, you know, so a lot of small failures. I mean, I think probably the biggest the biggest failure of my career was in between leaving private equity and you know starting a twenty four a market where I, I I invested and then sort of um, you know ran a mining services company facing supporting mines, in very remote um, you know locations. And you know on paper it was a fantastic business, you know thirty percent EBITDA margins, high cash flow conversion. Um, you know in reality, when you kind of got into the weeds of it um you know the way the business had been built um, you know ethically didn't didn't you know stand up to scrutiny once I was you know in the business and I think at that young age of my career I spent more time looking at um, you know where the things stacked up on, on paper on you know where the market's attractive and growing. Whether the uh, you know the product proposition sound, what the financials look like, and not enough time in, term, in terms of really understanding the people and their motivations, you know, and so that experience, which was a difficult one for me, I managed to kind of sell out and get out of the business, okay, and you know, live to fight another day, as it were. But that experience has kind of as as lived with me for the last the last ten years or so. And so when I ever get involved or invest in a company, it really sort of starts with people. We try to understand the people we're working with in a great amount of depth. We do a lot of background referencing. We do a lot of psychometrics. We really spend time getting comfortable with these people because I think as a minority investor, it's very difficult to change the founders are particularly when the founders collectively are the majority investor, and so if you get in bed with the wrong people, it might might be the best technology in the world, most interesting, you know, market. But if you're in bed with the wrong people, then you know your life's going to be miserable. So, you know, my learning has always been start with the people and move from there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting how that dovetails with the previous question. <laughs> so the EIS industry in which we work is great in many ways, but it's not perfect. What would you like to change about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think firstly, I I would say that EIS and VCT, you know, the UK's approach to you know tax-efficient early stage investing, I think is has really been the blueprint um, in which many other governments all over the world have kind of based, you know, their. Uh, support frameworks for high net worth individuals and you know individuals in general kind of getting involved in young companies so so it's by design it's fantastic you know I think that it is a um, an industry that is kind of in its first wave of evolution in the sense that you know it has had low barriers to entry for the last 10 years you know anybody, Uh, set up a small EIS bundle or or get a business going without having a track record. And that just really reflects that nobody's had a track record pre-2010 because, you know, EIS has only been really around in earnest or its current incarnation since 2011. So you've got a dynamic where uh, EIS in particular is very fragmented, um, but, you know, building an EIS business where you are raising and deploying 50, um, you know, 100 million pounds per year. I think it's only part we've kind of got to that, um, you know, level of, uh, you know, scale and critical mass. And so, you know, I I think the next kind of evolution of 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 EIS and the supply side and you know, the capital distribution side is. You're going to see, um, and this will be particularly true if there actually is a, you know, downturn in valuations, um, you know, in the space, which has to come at some point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're, we're in an elongated cycle. Who, who, who knows? But you know, mm-hmm. history would suggest it'll come at some point. And I think what you what 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 you will see is that, um, you know, there'll there'll be fewer players, um, you know, operating in the asset class, and I think that'll that'll be better because you know, there's a lot of you know, quite frankly, I see a lot of irrational pricing and irrational behavior kind of going into deals that would would never be the case, say, in the private equity market from where we came. Yes, it's very competitive, but it, it, it always wasn't general rational. That's that's sort of how I see the market evolving. Is that you know in the very long term you've got to have a track record like you know like any other asset class, unless you can kind of meaningfully prove a track record over very long cycles, and that's cash on cash rather than you know markups based on somebody else's valuation. You know you're 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 not going to be around.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I pick up one point you mentioned there? Because in our year-end panel, we sort of spoke about issues around valuation and investing in valuation. And there's this challenge for fund managers in the sense that, you know, it's almost like the Citigroup phenomenon. While the music's playing, you've got to get up and dance. As a fund manager, you've been given money to invest. You have to invest. Everybody speaks to says, oh, yeah, valuations are a bit up at the moment, a bit high. To be fair, they've said that for a few years. Um yeah. you know, are you do you find yourself in a little bit of a quandary here in terms of saying, well, values a bit up, but I still got to invest anyway?
1: Yes, yes, yes and no. It it kind of twists me. Um, I think the great the you know, the one way of kind of putting it is the Chuck Prince analogy while the music is playing get up and dance, um, the one you referenced. The other the other kind of more sobering way of putting it that I've heard recently is get get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, and I'm I'm uncom- frequently uncomfortable. I'm getting slightly more comfortable with being uncomfortable. It doesn't mean that I'm fully comfortable, <laughs> you know, just yet. So, you know, I think, yes, you know, if you if you felt valuations were high, you probably wouldn't have been putting money in in 2016. And, you know, that has been one of our best vintages or will be one of the best vintages for deploying um, capital. But by comparison to 2011, valuations were very high. You know, I think right now when you look at the you know public markets and, you know, sort of, cyclically adjusted CAPE ratio over a very long period of time, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, back to or close on 99, you know, type of numbers. So we are in a, you know, extreme valuation environments in public equities. And, you know, some of that is filtering, I mean, you know, a lot of that actually is filtering down to venture in general. But again, we're seeing it less at the Series A stage than we might be doing, you know, at the very later stages. So we were seeing, you know, companies, uh, we were seeing as companies we may have invested in a year ago, kind of seeing 5X uplifts on their follow on rounds. And, you know, the difficulty there is say, okay, hey, we put some money in last time, we're very happy with that uplift. But actually we're not cashing out at that, so it's meaningless. And probably we would have preferred a, whatever, two and a half, three X so we could pile some more money in. I'm being a bit facetious, but you know, that's that's the challenge, right? You're happy for your initial investment that it's it's marked up, but don't get too happy because you're not cashing out. But on the other hand, you know, the way we work is that it only really makes sense to do all the considerable work that we're doing if you're putting two or three tickets into every company that kind of makes it. And if your second and third ticket now are, are, are a lot more pricey than they used to be, you know that makes me a bit uncomfortable. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a difficult um, you know aspect of what we do because you can't just kind of shut down and get out of the market and say, I'll be back. When things you know look 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 good, but you have to be disciplined and not try to chase it at the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It, it is something I, I I think a lot of managers are wrestling with on some level yeah. at the moment. Uh, so it's interesting to get your perspective on that. So, as listeners know, I'm an avid reader. Do you want to tell us a book that you like and would recommend to people? Yeah. So well, you know, one of the book. Well, I mean, you know, I like a
1: lot of Books, but one one that's very kind of topical in this uh, uh, moment in time, just simply because uh, Elizabeth Holmes is kind of going through the final stages of her trial out in California is Bad Blood, which I I read probably when it came out, must be two or three years ago. um, And I'm actually kind of rereading it right now because. I think a lot of the lessons there about, you know, diligence are very sobering. Um, particularly, kind of given that what we do is work with high net worth investors, and when you look at the cap table um, of her company, it was it was all high net worth and family offices. No institution kind of touched that business, and you know I think it it is really sobering because there's a lot of this uh, benchmark, particularly on the high net worth side, where there is the assumption that somebody else knows what they're doing, and you know somebody's kind of done due diligence and somebody's validated this, and you know that can very quickly kind of snowball into a lot of people kind of putting money to work without anybody sort of stepping back and saying, "Hang on, has anybody really kind of you know looked into the guts of this business?" And when you sort of see some of the anecdotes. Coming out of that, um, it 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 shouldn't have taken a billion dollars of wasted equity for them to realize that there wasn't much substance to the product. That, that's a very good book. I made my investment team read that. I'm reading it again. You know, so so it's one that's been keeping up. I mean, the other the other <laughs> I one. Would, that I, I would read,
0: second that recommendation. I I've actually read that, and it is it an excellent book. Even if, as you yeah. say, it's a little scary in some ways. It
1: is it, it it is scary that something like that could happen in this day and age. After you know, sort of the Madoff crisis, and you know, and uh, uh, after the financial crisis. But you know, I think there's a lot about the lessons learned there that you kind of learned if you're in the financial services industry, and you learn if you're in the private equity industry. But maybe it didn't filter down quite so much, um, you know, to to, to to the venture industry. And you know, the venture industry just has a hell of a lot less systematic risk. Uh, you know, than, you know, than PE and, you know, investment banking, for example. So it's never been as heavily regulated. Yeah. And you mentioned the second book. Well, the other book that I, I read recently, which I thought was fantastic, um, is uh, is The House of Pain, about the Sackler family and the the opioid crisis in the US that is kind of going on right now. And I mention it because I think it, 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 it just, I mean, to me, it kind of speaks to the power of uh, the power and the malevolence, I guess, of of, of consumer marketing, if used um, in the wrong way, and also, just I guess, the, some of the scary aspects of how inefficient um, regulation is, particularly in the U.S., particularly in some areas of the healthcare system. And you know, I was talking earlier about conflicts of interest and how that can really distort things. The fact that um, you know you have researchers, uh, people who work in regulatory bodies that are uh, that are able to kind of be paid off for, uh, you know, sort of brought on, you know, these very generous consulting pro- uh, uh, projects by, you know, sort of the the, the drug companies for whose products they're, they're, you know, they're reviewing and approving, um, you know. So I think that was that was a great
0: book as well. It really kind of opened my eyes, um, you know, to that to that market. Well, that one I haven't read, so I shall add it to my shopping list because, yeah. I highly
1: recommend it as a
0: Christmas read. Okay. I shall see what I can do for that. What do you wish you knew when you started with twenty four Haymarket market that you know now?
1: yeah i mean i think I think the first thing is that um, you know it's funny I mean a lot of the young entrepreneurs that i that I uh, meet also sort of have this you know the same perception um you know that scaling in business is linear, and if you sort of set out and say, well, you know this is where I want the business to be um you know in Seven, ten years time, and this is where I am today. And I divide that gap by seven or ten, and that's the increments that I need to kind of make over time. And if I'm making those increments every year, uh, then I'm on a successful journey. You know, the the reality is that it's never linear. You, you you sit there and you work hard for five years without making any progress, seeming any progress whatsoever. You feel like you're making progress, but you know when you rack it all up and you kind of measure it against what you set out, it, it, it kinda of rarely stacks up. But you kinda of keep going because you have the faith and in my case, um, I knew I was surrounded by some exceptional people and there was a great degree of trust between uh, uh, my my, my co founders and I. So I kept I kept going. But it really kinda of took me five or six years and when you got really up to point about two or three years ago when we started to have a track record and you know and then, and, and then we reached that sort of tipping point where things started to become a lot easier and building the business was a lot easier. I mean, we're still, you know, not out of the woods, but we're, I'd say we're a kind of scale-up business right now rather than a startup business. And so, you know, my advice to many entrepreneurs that, that that I meet is, you know, never assume your first five years is going to be kind of linear progress, uh, you know, to your goal. And in some senses, um, you've got to have, you know, both, both the vision, the commitment to that vision, as well as kind of enjoy the people that you're working with uh, to really kind of get you through those those tough times because if you don't have you know those two things uh, and you only measure your success against the linear path um you might be giving up pretty quickly mm-hmm.
0: yeah I, I think exponential growth is something that the human mind struggles to deal with because we're, we're great at the bit that goes up very quickly but that exponential growth often means there's a sort of bit that's very much slower than you might expect
1: yeah. I mean, the, the analogy, it's, it sort of t- took somebody 15 years to be an overnight success. But mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of that's true for many businesses. And, you know, we see it in our portfolio as well. We could be investing in something and patiently putting capital and uh, we, we actually had a situation recently where we, we'd almost written the company off, uh, written the investment off, and somebody kind of came out, bought the business for a big price. We made seven times our money, and we're extremely happy about that. And But it it wasn't sort of designed that well. I mean, initially, it was designed that way, but in the middle years, it years, it was very difficult.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that sort of the J curve has a dip before they have the up bit, which is... Um, yeah. challenging to
1: yeah. and, you know it's easy to understand a paper but when you're living with it it's it, it's a lot more difficult and I think you know that thats that me it comes back to people I think if you have the right mindset there's a lot of people who are intelligent um, and committed enough to build a very interesting business it, it really comes down to kind of just working through those struggles over a long period uh, of time
0: yeah 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 it comes back to the people you were talking about this is a recurring theme that I'm picking up. So, if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at 24 Haymarket, where should they go?
1: Well, we have a, we have a website, www.24haymarket.com. You know, that's the easiest place to find us. Alternatively, physically, we are at 24 Haymarket uh, right down the road uh, from Piccadilly Tube Station. So, we weren't very inventive uh, with our brand. and We found a very nice office space. And uh, got a good lease on it. Um, unfortunately, in the ten it's years, a long-term it's one now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going through our lease renewal right now, which it's a fortunate time to be doing that, you know, given given the environment. Um, but uh, you know, if you wanted to come visit us, we are we are at that location. It's a very central, you know, area within within Mayfair and Common Garden. Um, so that that is where you'll find us physically.
0: Excellent. Omicron and various variants permitting as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course, of course.
0: So thank you very much for your time today, Paul. I've really enjoyed finding out a bit more about what you do and wishing you every success for the future. Thank you very much, Brian. Pleasure to speak. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmanandco.com. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you soon.